Attention CNFers, riff. So for this episode of Hashtag CNF, the podcast where I speak with artists about creating works of nonfiction, I invited Hattie Fletcher on the show. She's the managing editor for Creative Nonfiction, the quarterly literary magazine based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's the flagship journal of the genre, if you want my opinion, and it always lights up my mailbox every three months or so. Hattie grew up in Cleveland and was drawn to the classics, especially Latin, so much so that she majored in Latin in college and went on to become a middle school Latin teacher. After several years, she entered a creative nonfiction MFA program in Pittsburgh, where she eventually took up shop in the offices of creative nonfiction as its managing editor. So without further ado, let's just um, let's go listen to Hattie talk shop. At what point did you want to make that transition from being a Latin, middle school Latin teacher to, to something else and to uh, sort of like to go to grad school and then pursue a more um, broad brush creative nonfiction type pursuit? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Uh, so I was I was teaching in Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh um, has, you know, the creative nonfiction program at University of Pittsburgh was um, one of the first MFA programs, maybe the first uh, full, you know, full, I don't know what you would call that. What's, what's the opposite of like a low-res program? Is there a word for that even? Um, yeah, anyway, <laughs> it's the MFA program here at Pitt, which Lee founded um, a, a, a long time ago now, um, had, I was sort of aware of, and I had started I was doing a lot of reading and kind of reading more broadly and became aware of this kind of nonfiction that had stories and everything. And, and so it was a little bit of a whim, I guess, that I applied. Um, I've always enjoyed writing. I've always liked words. Um, and actually my husband was sort of like, you know, there's this program you could, you could apply to that. He was an English major, um, and thought about being a writer. And so I did that and, um, I really enjoyed you know, being out of the middle school classroom and sort of having an opportunity after a while out of school to read and talk about words and um, writing. And that was great. Um, I think I enjoyed it a lot more than I would have if I had gone to grad school right after undergrad. Um, you know, but I never really, I technically didn't finish my MFA. So I wasn't so interested in the actual re- writing the book part. Um, I didn't do that. So. And what was the the draw or maybe some influential essayists and authors in the creative nonfiction genre that you found very magnetic and exciting to study and learn from? Yeah, I mean, I love Annie Dillard and John McPhee, you know, so sort of the, I think creative nonfiction, the magazine skews, um, takes a, a slightly more uh, journalistic view of creative nonfiction um, than some other people would define it these days. Um, and that's definitely sort of the angle I came at it from. So I suppose it's, it's lucky that that's the program that was here. Um, but I started from that point, I think of, 
more research oriented. Um, you know, when I was doing grad school, it was sort of around the time that all those books, um, you know, the like little thing, big thing books. So it was like the color mauve salt, all those books were sort of starting to come out. And I've always thought those were super interesting ways to, um, you know, ways to learn about the world. So collecting stories about something that, that gives you an opportunity to talk about history and current events and, and all those things. So, and, you know, and then the, the memoir side of things too is obviously really compelling. So, um, you know, Annie Dillard's An American Childhood was written about the neighborhoods kind of right around where I live. So that was, um, that was, I remember that being a big find, um, and really enjoying that a lot. That was, I was suppose is a, was kind of one of those books early on that I read and I was like, Oh, this, this is great. And how, how do you know as, as a reader, like when, when a writer is struck that like a really good balance between the reportage and the personal stuff, like what, how does that feel like to you when you're reading that stuff? And like, how would you characterize that, that balance? Oh, that balance. Um, that balance is such the challenge, isn't it? That's the mm -hmm. hard part. Um, for me, I think when I, when I look at a lot of, um, when I look at a lot of writing in a, in a lot of different ways, I think about it. Um, I'm kind of attuned to the larger rhythms in writing. And by that, I don't necessarily mean kind of like poetic rhythms, but, um, almost, um, almost like mathematical kind of rhythms. So actually I just posted on the creative nonfiction Facebook wall. There was a, a story about someone who was plotting, um, the rhythms of it was fiction actually, but it was sort of graphing out, um, word lengths in sentences and sort of the flows of things. And so there are all these charts and graphs kind of looking at, um, plots and emotions and how stories get built over time. And I suppose you could look at that and say, um, you know, I suppose there's a kind of writer who would look at that and say, that's really depressing that there's kind of a formula. Um, I don't necessarily feel that way. I think, uh, I think it's fascinating that there's that formula that it's sort of almost an intuitive thing, you know, sort of in the same way that if you look at music theory, right, there are sort of certain, certain things that music most of the time does, um, you know, and, and almost not necessarily rules, but sort of those rules about how, if something starts in a certain key, it's supposed to, you know, classically end in that same key. And I think a lot of those same rhythms, we don't necessarily always break them down into charts in writing, but I think they're there. And I think, um, something sort of deep in us as readers is a little bit attuned to that the same way that we are as listeners, even if we're not kind of formally sitting it, sitting down and charting it out. So I think that balance is, you know, it's really hard to say exactly what it is. I think it's easier to, to see it when it's not there, but that could just be my critical editor side speaking because I get to be critical that way. Um, <laughs> like, isn't it kind of liberating in, in a sense that there are, there are these sort of boundaries or rules, but how you color within those boundaries is where the real creativity comes from. Like, do you, like, do you, do you find that, you know, that there is some sort of formula actually kind of, kind of helps things because there's an internal rhythm. It's like a song or something that you just kind of, it has its own natural frequency, but you can kind of play within that boundary. And then therein lies like, uh, something that can really resonate with a reader. I, I don't know. It, it, does that strike? Does that make any sense to you? I think it does, and that's actually a sort of thing I do as an editor a lot. Um, so I'll leave kind of comments and pieces where 
um, sometimes in some pieces I'll even just make things up. Like something's missing, you know, it's, it's kind of, there's a spot where there's a transition and I'll write kind of in my editorial notes in the margins, I'll write something like, you know, it seems like here you need to skip to some bigger picture thing. And sometimes I'll make up facts or, and I'll say, I'm making this up, obviously, you know, and I'll make up some facts or I'll make up some backstory because it's always the actual what goes there. I don't know what goes there. Um, that's the part the writer does. But as an editor, I can say, you need something that is going to be this sort of thing goes here. And maybe it's um, a flashback in time, or maybe it's some research element, or maybe it's something else. And then I think one of the great things, one of the things that I think is really fun about editing is seeing what comes back then, because, because I really don't know what goes there, because it's always a part of the story that hasn't made it to the page. Mm. Um, and I would say probably 90% of the time, what comes back is um, amazing and delightful, um, and a wonderful surprise that usually kind of adds something to the story, but I wouldn't have known what it was before it came back. But I, but I think seeing those rhythms is kind of one of the things that an editor can do. Um, and I, I think it's partly just from reading a lot, you know, it's partly from sort of working with stories a lot, but that's always fun for me to ask that question and then see, see what comes back. (laughs) How did you cultivate that eye to see, the negative space. It's like the dark matter of an essay. Like, you know, that there's something, <laughs> there's something there. like you said, there's something, there's something there. Here. I don't know what it is. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, how, how did you cultivate doing that? It, I, don't, I don't think it's anything I cultivated consciously, really. I think it's just, I mean, it's, it's partly a process of, of working with stories um, and working with writers Um, you know, at this point I've been doing this for 12 years. I do most, not all, I do less of it now than I did at the beginning, but I do a lot of the editorial work with the essays. So, you know, if we have four issues a year and there are say 10 pieces in an issue, um, that adds up pretty quickly over the years. Yeah. It's, it's funny. It's like how like astronomers or something they 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 know where a black hole is based they can't see the black hole but they see how everything is behaving around the black hole so it's like you're able to identify (laughs) like that negative space and like yeah there's everything's orbiting around something that we can't see but like make us see that thing i think it's just pattern recognition too probably over time right right again not to be reductive that sounds kind of lame but i i don't think it is really (laughs) yeah and what appeals to you about say that that overarch that editing the editing eye versus the writer eye like why do why does why do you feel um like where's your comfort on the editor editing side like how do where's the appeal for that and how why were you drawn to that Um, I think looking back, actually, I spent a lot of time in grad school in workshops, um, sort of trying to, uh, you know, workshops can be really frustrating, right? Because you, as a writer, you kind of slave over this piece, and you think you know what you're doing, um, or you're not sure exactly what you're doing, but you think you're headed in a direction, Um, and you throw this piece on the table and in my experience, at least with, with nonfiction, um, you know, there's a sizable part of the comments that you get and questions that you get where 
um, or I don't, maybe it was just my MFA program. I don't think it was though, where, where people are sort of like, well, this is great. This thing you wrote here is great, but there's this character, Bob on page four, who there's three sentences about him, but he seems like a quirky guy. And I'm wondering if really you don't need five pages about Bob. Um, you know, I don't know. Is that typical? I think that's probably typical. People, people want to hear the story that isn't there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think my comments and workshops ended up, uh, tended to be a lot more, well, but that isn't the story that the writer is trying to tell. Like Bob, I don't think Bob is the main character because Bob is just this guy with these three sentences, you know, here at the, here in the bottom of page five. Um, and so I think in grad school, I actually spent a lot of time trying to kind of get at what it was writers were trying to do with their stories and then trying to make the stories be the best form of that as mm. opposed to kind of, I think there's a different kind of editing probably that's a little bit more developmental that is more, um, more involves kind of saying, no, 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 that's not actually your story at all. Um, but I think because of the nature of the kind of work we do at creative nonfiction, which is much more, um, you know, generally it follows the model of people send a piece and you kind of more or less like that piece generally. And then you kind of make it work. You know, I mean, we published you recently, right? And so, you know, it's kind of like you say, here's the story, the story's great. And then, you know, in your case, I think there were some paragraphs at the beginning and it was sort of like, well, that's maybe not the beginning of your story, but it wasn't sort of like, well, here's here's your whole story that's about middle school. But what if it was actually a story about college? You know, like that's a whole different kind of editing. Yeah. Um, and so I in in retrospect, I spent a lot of time in grad school trying to kind of deal with what was on the page and and see what was the best form of what was there as opposed to. Um, a lot more of that foundational stuff, which maybe is actually more appropriate to grad school, but where you're kind of helping people try to figure out where their story actually is. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, lot, lots of sense. It makes sense in my head. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, no, it definitely does. And I, I think the best editors, as are the best, say, coaches or something, they see the u the unique talent and what the person is trying to accomplish, like you were saying, and not try to make it uh, make it the editor's piece through the writer's voice. Like they're actually trying to, like you said, instead of learning more about Bob, even though the writer doesn't want to talk about Bob, you're like, well, what is, you're trying to get into the writer's headspace and help them achieve the best possible piece. And then you just kind of step back. And is I think that's, uh, that's like one of the more noble and hard things that, the great editors do is that they're able to and uh, just kind of work off in the in the background a little bit and make the best possible piece for the, for that writer and ultimately for the publication and writ large so so yeah it makes perfect sense yeah that was actually one of the nicest maybe one of the nicest compliments i've ever gotten from a writer um she said she'd worked with a lot of editors but no one had made her sound as much like herself as i had and i was like okay <laughs> i'll take that i think that's I think that's what I'm going for. And when did no. you when did you start it? You said uh, you know 12, 13 years ago you started creative nonfiction. Yeah, is that roughly? So uh, yeah, what? somewhere in there, 2000, okay. 2005, 2004. 
I don't even remember. That's awful, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what were the circumstances that brought you to the magazine? So creative nonfiction, in the time I've been there, um, we've kind of grown a lot as an organization, but we're still pretty tiny. Um, we're pretty small. We're an independent nonprofit, so we don't have, um, unlike a lot of literary magazines of our size, I think we don't really have an institutional affiliation, so we don't have, um, we have now a lot of readers, but we don't have um, kind of a huge, you know, it's not like there's, we have a graduate school full of students reading for the magazine or anything like that. Um, and so I had done some volunteer reading when I was in grad school and I did grad school while I was still teaching. And then I kind of took some time off to try to finish up my MFA. And around that time, the, um, managing editor before me, uh, Jess, Messman, now her last name's Griffith, who's a great writer and is teaching for our online classes, uh, moved away and Lee kind of called one day and he was throwing a festival in Pittsburgh on top of the publications and said, uh, I thought you might be able to help. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, that's a really vague job description. Um, but that's kind of as specific as it ever got, actually. And that was, you know, 13 years ago, 12 years ago, whatever. So here we are. Um, and in the meantime, it's kind of grown, you know, the magazine's changed. We've redesigned it over the years. Um, we just added this new monthly magazine. Um, we've got these online classes, we do an annual conference. And so it's all kind of just gradually piled up over the years. What has the experience been like seeing, seeing it go from where it was when you started, uh, at the, at the journal, like what I think you would probably call it more a literary journal at the start. And now it's kind of seems to have graduated more to like your classic magazine. So like, what is, what has it been like to be working there over the course of that transition and seeing that kind of growth? Yeah, it's been, it's been good. I mean, it's scary sometimes because change is scary sometimes. Right. So, um, you know, there have been times when it's been a little unclear whether, um, a given change would work or not. They feel kind of like leaps of faith. I think um, some of the changes we've made really have been in reaction to other changes in the world. So certainly in the time I've been at creative nonfiction, um, you know, it's gotten, it's gotten easier in a lot of ways to publish a magazine. Um, it's gotten harder to publish a magazine in the sense that because it is now easier, um, you know, on a design front, it's easier. Um, or at least it's more I don't know if it's easier. It's more user friendly. The technology is certainly easier. Um, you know, to lay something out in InDesign is a lot easier than, than in Quark or whatever. Um, so the bar to entry that way is lower. But I think the, the flip side of that is that um, that raises the bar somewhat. So when we redesigned the magazine, part of it was um, part of it was in reaction to understanding challenges facing print. And so um, if you're familiar with the older creative nonfiction, it was a lot more of a traditional journal. It was really not a very um, physically attractive publication, um, which I think, you know, we would still say the substance is more important than the style. But I think in this day and age, if you want to make a print um, a print object, there's sort of an obligation to make a, a nice print object. Um, and so when we redesigned, we really tried to kind of make the magazine something that, um, people would want to keep on their shelf and would sort of value. And it would be nice to hold and touch and, you know, sort of all those 
tactile things having to do with reading because it's not just the substance of it. It's the experience of reading in print. Um, so, and, and that I think was a response to a certain moment in time when, um, you know, e-readers were sort of on the rise and everyone was talking about how print was dead. And at the same time, um, you know, the economy crashed and sort of print publishing crashed. And so we happened to, to luck in a little bit, um, to, to being stable enough to be able to carry that off at a certain time. And, and after we redesigned the magazine, actually, um, which I guess was 2010, um, but our subscriber numbers doubled um, in the first six months after that. So that was kind of, wow. you know, at a time when publishing as a whole was not doing really well. But, but I don't know that that was the result of a plan necessarily. That just happened to be on our timetable where we ended up at that time. But yeah, it's been it's gone through kind of a lot of changes, and and now we're we're trying to figure out you know how much how much can we keep growing, and and what new direction do we have to keep going in to to sort of keep it all afloat. How important? But it's still a tiny organization, and everyone still has a part time job. So, you know, we act bigger than we are. I think sometimes. <laughs> Well, how important was it for you to remain in print and not to have like this entire this on online division or be strictly online? Even though you do share some of the essays online, like most and the bulk of the issue is strictly in print. So, how how important was it to maintain that legacy? Um, I think it's pretty important to us um, for for a number of reasons. I think one. Um, we do, we are lucky enough to have, um, a fair percentage of readers who do value that tactile experience. I think as, um, you know, in publishing generally, I think people are paying more attention to that. So there are kind of studies about, um, you know, the importance that the, that we read differently in print than online. Um, I think they've, they've done kind of studies about kids and textbooks and, it's a different kind of reading that we do online. And so the things that we share um, broadly are either shorter pieces or are kind of the more informational craft pieces that we know will be useful um, to find an audience online. The longer pieces that we publish, I think our site is not a great place necessarily to read long form. I'm not sure that any site is actually a great place to read long form. Um, I just, I don't think there's the same... I think except for probably rare readers, I don't think mostly people pay the same attention. I know I'm guilty of, um, you know, every once in a while, have you ever had that experience where you start to read um, like a New York Times magazine cover story online and you're reading and they're great, right? Because they're always great. They're these great narratives. And then you become kind of aware as you're scrolling. You're like, wait a minute, <laughs> like how much scrolling is involved in this story? You know, and you look over at that sidebar yeah. and you're like, oh man, this like this, this is one of those really long stories. And I, it's not, I don't enjoy that experience of reading that way. Um, and I think a lot of people don't, I think people abandon stories. Um, and so I think kind of deliberately, you know, a lot of our stories, which also tend to be kind of more nuanced, they're not very clickbaity. They're not, um, a lot of them sound more than one note. Um, you know, and I, I'm just not sure that that experience even, I think the kinds of stories that spread online also don't tend to be kind of 6,000 word long nuanced personal stories that involve an element of research, you know? So, so I think print is, is a good vehicle for us still. 
Um, and, and I think that's where kind of the impetus for our new magazine, True Story, came from, too, is that there aren't a lot of places for kind of these mid-length pieces. Um, you know, so we publish things that are between broadly five and 10,000 words. There's not a lot of places where you can publish a really good, thoughtful 10,000-word essay. Um, so we were trying to kind of fill a gap for that. But that's also print, mostly. So what are what are some maybe wrong impressions that writers have of editors? Oh, wrong impressions? Hmm. I mean, I think generally, well, I think sometimes, um, you know, it's easy on the submissions game especially um, to get kind of caught up in this notion that um, you know, editors, I guess, kind of wield power. Um, most editors I know aren't really on power trips <laughs> necessarily. You know, I think sometimes writers are like, oh, editors just love saying no. Um, I don't know anyone who loves saying no. Um, I mean, the best part of my job is the day, you know, and it comes mostly like four times a year when I get to say yes to a bunch of people. <laughs> it's great. I love it. I wish I could do that every day. Mm-hmm. It's really fun and gratifying. Um, saying no's much harder. Um, and I think a lot of times people, uh, people take it really personally. Um, and it's really, it's not a personal thing. And so I think, I guess one misperception, I guess you could boil that all down to people forget that editors are people too. Um, a lot of editors are also writers who are out there submitting their own work and, and going through that same process. And so, um, you know, I think that's, kind of a common misconception. Yeah, maybe right writers but, could probably get a better sense of what editors are going through if they in fact do some of this kind of editing and and calling and reading through slush piles if you will and then yeah. realize that there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff here that's like decent but maybe it just doesn't quite it's just a li- it's a it's a little flat or sharp or whatever you want to call it, and uh, there probably probably be a greater degree of understanding if if you can just get on the other side of the fence once in a while. Yeah, and I think reading slush is such a great exercise for a writer. It's such a good thing to do um, for so many reasons. I think it gives you a better view of your own work, and it gives you a it does it gives you that view on the process. Um, and it makes you kind of think about pieces differently. I think reading reading something and trying to decide whether you're going to publish it is a little different than reading something um, that's already in print. It's just a different experience. Um, and and the, the process of trying to make the case for why something is or isn't a fit for a magazine, I think, is also a really good experience for a writer. Um, and I think it gives you a sense, too, of, you know, especially in nonfiction, um, and this is probably as true in fiction. I just don't read a lot of fiction slush or any really. Um, but there are kind of a lot of stories, especially personal stories that people try to tell again and again. And that's not to say that you can't have a fresh, interesting story about any subject, um, no matter how many, you know, how many people have tackled it before. But you do start to see when you read a lot of submissions, you do start to see that there are a lot of themes and stories and approaches that kind of repeat themselves. And so I think that's a useful thing too, just to sort of see, you know, after a while reading slush, you you can sort of say like, oh, this is that travel story that that unless I really miss my guess, is <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's gonna end up here. Um 
And, and that I think is as a writer is good to be aware of because then when you sit down to write that travel story, at least, you know, you know, which, which kind of pattern you don't want to follow exactly because it's been done so many times. What percentage of the slush pile would you say just straight up isn't ready? It needs more time. Um, Oh gosh. Uh, I mean, there's a percentage I think of any slush pile that is just made up of writing and or writers who kind of aren't, um, aren't even close. So for example, I'll say, um, and this sounds mean and I don't mean it that way, but like, you know, we get random submissions from like 14 year olds. Um, and that's not to say that we would never publish something by a 14 year old, just the, the odds are against it. Um, given the kind of writing we publish. Um, so there are kind of people who are just a little bit out of their league right off the bat. Um, and then, you know, people send us poetry randomly, <laughs> like, you know, there, there are sort of things that are just really bad fits or, you know, you get random religious treatises. Um, so there's kind of a, a bottom layer of, of, of work that, you know, I think in the popular imagination, editors also are skimming like first paragraphs and tossing things aside. And I'm not going to say I never do that or that our readers never do that because there is kind of a very small, maybe 10% percentage of work we get that is clearly, clearly, clearly not a good fit. Beyond that, um, you know, there's obviously, there's some better crafted work than others. When we get, um, for an issue, I would say we usually get, well, it ranges how many submissions we get, but for a theme issue, we'll get, let's say at least 300 submissions. I'll usually read like 30 or 40 of those these days. So they go through a bunch of different readers. And then we have this really wonderful coordinating editor, Matt Spindler, who, um, looks through all the reader comments and, sort of reads a lot of the pieces himself and kind of weighs in and he'll save pieces sometimes, even if readers didn't like them because they, um, it seems to him they fit the theme or add something new to the mix. Um, but really when I'm reading, I think again, there's this like mythic notion of kind of the perfect piece. And sometimes with an issue, there will be a couple pieces that I just know right off the bat, we're going to accept. And beyond that, it's, it's a lot of thinking, um, it's rarely an easy decision. I, so I'll read 30 or 40. I'll give Lee maybe a pile of 10 and we come up with our final mix from there. But a lot of times it comes down to, um, it's really small things like, uh, I'm thinking about the issue. I just did acceptances for, there were a couple, like there were two pieces. Um, oh, it was the adaptation issue and there were two pieces. You, you get a lot of pieces in pairs at the end, sort of, where you're like, well, we'll take one of these, but we won't take both. Um, in this case, there were two pieces that were about support group experiences, um, and they were about different kind of support group experiences. One was kind of funny, one was not funny, um, but they were both, like, clearly in an issue, we weren't going to have two two stories that largely featured people sitting around in a circle, like in a church basement, you know, talking about sort of a family challenge. But we were going to take one of them. So, so then it's a different, you know, the calculation is sort of 
nuanced at that point in terms of how it plays with the rest of the issue, which which piece as a whole works better than the other. Um, but it's also a little bit of a crapshoot, honestly. Yeah. You know, it could easily it could easily go the other way. Yeah, it's it's almost like even maybe some other piece you may have accepted. It's kind of like it's kind of like how musicians will track certain songs in a particular order on a CD. Like maybe other ones you've already decided to accept, they just riff better together as a cohesive unit. Right. I, I don't. That's got. Yeah, that's really that's really insightful. What you're saying, like how how nuanced and instinctive it must get towards the end. It does. It's hard. It's hard, but I can say that too because I've been doing it for a long time. At the at the start, I think it was probably much more like I don't know. This one's better, <laughs> you know, whatever <laughs> that means. Um, but now, you know, and I think too, we um, we edit a little more actively than some um, literary magazines our size, and so I think that also gives us a little more flexibility on what to accept too, um, because everything doesn't have to be specifically perfect, um, you know, or the very, very, very best version of what it is. Cause we'll work with it a little bit to kind of give it that last final nudge. So that's helpful to be able to do too. I think, um, for everybody, you know, for the writer, for the reader, for us. So how does it feel when a piece of writing like really sticks out in that big, you know, the 300 piles, uh, 300 submissions. Like, granted, like you've, when it comes to your desk, you're getting to, or you're getting to some like triple A ball, and it's a matter of getting those to the show. Um, so, what does it feel like when you, when you, uh, you've gone through some of the weaker ones, and then you hit upon one? You're like, oh, this one's a little bit special. What's that like for you? Oh, um, so I, that's uh, it's rare. First of all, like it's, it's really sort of a rare thing. I kind of wrote about that once, um, in the sense that, uh, I don't, I'm not for better and for worse. I'm not one of those editors who's just sort of like in love with every piece. I usually, by the time we publish them, I'm in love with them all, but there, I rarely read something and I'm just like, Oh my gosh. Um, but we did, we did a weather issue. Um, and we published this piece by Amaris Ketchum that was called recorded lightning. I think, and it was written, um, you know, it was one of those essays, it took the shape of the thing and it had three different strands and they were all zigzagged across the page like lightning strands, which I know sounds really like it shouldn't work. Um, but it came, uh, Matt was like, you know, the readers really like this. I know it's shaped like lightning, but, <laughs> but I think it's really good. Um, you know, so I headed into it with kind of a lot of skepticism. And she did this great thing where the first... Um, kind of the first lightning bolt you read all the way down is a, is a narrative and it ends on kind of a cliffhanger and then you have to go all the way back, you know, and it's, it's on paper. So you had to go back 10 pages or whatever and, and start over. And then it was kind of a lot of information, um, and all these fascinating things about lightning. And then it picked back up in the third strand, um, and told the story that the cliffhanger led to in the first thing. And it was such a great experience to read that because I got to the end and I was really like, oh my God, she pulled it off. This is awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think I swore. It was great. Um, it was really awesome. You know, it was like I was sitting alone in my house at night and kind of like fist pumping. So <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but that's rare. That doesn't even happen with every issue. Um, but it's great. It's so exciting to be able to kind of like 
you know, read something, especially something that sets out kind of in a way that seems not very promising. And then to, you know, in this day and age, if something keeps your attention sort of the whole way through, you know, that's a good sign in the first place. But, but that you can kind of, you're like, yeah, they pulled it off. It's awesome. Yes. <laughs> so I love that. That's great. It's the best. What do you think writers can do to become better editors and editors of their own work? Of their own work? I think that's really hard. Um, I mean, I think it's helpful sometimes, like some of the things that I end up doing um, for pieces, I think writers could do. And for me, it's, I think it, it's kind of trying to visualize that structure more. And so I know some writers do that um, intuitively. Sometimes um, when I'm working with people, I'll even, if, if it's a sort of piece that skips around a lot or has a lot of sections, you know, is sort of like a braided thing or something, I'll sometimes map that out on paper, really. So it's like section one is this, section two is this, section three, you know, or like if there's complicated time frames and back and forth. Um, and I, I sometimes get the feeling that writers don't necessarily do that really deliberately, or they, they kind of do the, um, you know, a structure seems a little bit intuitive to a point. And then there's that point where you have to kind of refine it. And I think sometimes people don't necessarily know how to take that extra step um, of being more analytical about something that seemed intuitive. And I think sometimes that's a fear, you know, that that's that fear of art, right? That, um, or, or that expectation we have of art sometimes that it, it just comes from this place of flow and it's like magic and you get inspired and it just all, you know, sorts itself out on the page. And I think that can happen sometimes, but I don't think that's necessarily the normal course of events. Um, and I, I don't think that, I don't think that art that is kind of a little more deliberately mapped out is any less artful necessarily. But I, I think, um, you know, that, that desire for that sort of flow is really powerful, right? I think we all kind of want to believe in that, you know, that the deranged, like inspired artist who just, mm -hmm. oh, there it is. But, but I, I don't think that necessarily works for everybody. Um, so I, I think a lot of people can kind of benefit from taking that step back and, and being a little more deliberative or, or mapping things out or sort of, um, you know, kind of delineating the structure. Like Lee talks a lot about, um, the yellow test. And, and so he does this thing that's yellow highlighting and kind of just really looking at the narrative and sort of the flow of, you know, if you have a main narrative that goes through something, you know, is it a chunk of yellow at the beginning and the end? Cause that probably isn't a really effective structure, but if you have, you know, sort of a chunk of yellow here and then some not yellow and then a little yellow that, that it's a really visual way of being able to see, um, you know, how long are you leaving readers hanging on narrative? Um, without, without sort of advancing the story. So I think those kinds of analytical tools can be really helpful. And those are, those are probably easier for writers to, um, to sort of bring into their own work. Um, but aren't necessarily, again, they're, they're tools. They're not, they're not necessarily intuitive. Um, you know? Yeah. So the, the yellow test that when, uh, if, Lee or anyone is looking at something the yellow is like the the story component the narrative component and everything else would be what sort of the 
I don't know, the informative research based? Is that? Yeah, Yeah, broadly. Yeah. Which can, you know, is, I think we talk about that research element and that sometimes gets, gets confusing. Sometimes that research element is just backstory or, um, you know, background information, um, as opposed to even research, but yeah, the yellow is kind of the actual flow of the narrative. And so at the end, if you can strip out, like, here's where the story starts and then here are the things that happen in the story. And then look, the story came to an end, you know, not every story is like that, but a lot of stories are like that. It's, it's not, it's not a bad starting point. So, yeah. So, so when you're starting to really get nitty gritty on, on editing something like what is, what is your process like for when you, when you, you take out the pen and start, or the scalpel, if you will, and start like (laughs) wanting to cut, cut, like just kind of like cut, through i don't know and evaluate a piece like what does that look like for you when you're ready to just get start getting your hands dirty oh i mean for me a lot of it is really again it's a little bit um i don't know i want to say it's intuitive that sounds stupid though um but it is it's it's almost just i don't know i start a new document but i can tell you what i do (laughs) you'll see maybe what it is I mean, I start a new document and I just, I usually just start from the beginning and I've usually read a story, um, a couple times by that point, um, because I've read it during the submission process. And then again, um, so I've read the piece two or three times. Um, if I have kind of big picture thoughts, I've usually had those. So, cause those are involved in, in like the decision-making process. So if it's very, Um, you know, if it's something like we're going to accept this, but I I don't think it needs that beginning section, for example. Um, I already know that. Um, and then I just, I do a lot of work in track changes. Um, I kind of work as I go. I usually circle back through a piece. I probably spend, I would say with a 5,000 word essay, I don't know, a couple hours probably going through a piece. Um, and then what I'll do is I, what I send to a writer, um, I'll send that version with all my track changes. Um, I'll also send a, a clean version of that document. So I'll make another version. I'll accept all my changes. Um, I'll tell the writer in my cover letter that they don't necessarily need to accept all those changes. It's just because, um, all the track changes things, I think, because sometimes there's formatting notes, it gets to be a lot to look through. Um, especially if you don't spend a lot of time working in track changes, it, it can look, it can look like a lot of red pen, even when it's not really a lot of critical red pen. Sometimes it's just like reformatting the paragraph margins, but it looks kind of intense. Um, so I'll send a clean version and I'll, I'll usually write a lot of comments in the margins that are, um, you know, a lot of times leaving spaces for those kinds of things I talked about before where, um, where there's a question or where I know there's another part of the story, but it's not on the page. Um, and it's just sort of a running commentary with the piece. That's very kind of like, it might be helpful here to explain, you know, who you are, how old you are at the time this, this happens, or, um, you know, if it's a story about someone's first job, you know, what specifically the job was people, I think a lot of times, one of the, one of the things an editor can do is, is be a really good listener, um, and listen for the things that seem so obvious to the writer that the writer doesn't include them. Um, and again, maybe that's specific to nonfiction just because you kind of know that you were 24 and you were living in Pasadena and I don't know, your hair was long, whatever. Um, and a lot of that, a a surprising amount of that stuff just doesn't make it to the page because you don't think to 
put it there. Um, so I do a lot of kind of asking those sorts of questions, like what's the context for this or, you know, how does, how does this make sense, um, in here? So I ask a ton of questions, um, and they're usually not, sometimes they're literal questions. Like sometimes they're really questions that's like, you need to put this piece of information here. A lot more times it's just sort of my running commentary as a reader. Like you say this thing and it makes me wonder all these different things. So I wonder if you want me to wonder all those things right now. And if you don't, maybe that could be reworded in a way that doesn't raise all those questions or, you know, maybe you do want to ask all those questions. Um, so it's just sort of a whole commentary. And then I send both of those versions and I wait to see kind of what comes back in response. And sometimes, you know, a lot of times with the magazine, there aren't so many of those questions. Um, with our new magazine, true story, we're publishing these longer pieces and those will sometimes come back, um, with, like 1500 new words, hmm. um, which is always really interesting. Cause then there's, it turns out there's a whole other part to the story that you didn't even know was there. Um, so that's kind of fun. What is it about say the, the stories that typically make it into the quarterly versus the monthly? Like how do those differ besides just pure length? And, uh, what, what excites you about those pieces that go from, from the monthly say to the quarterly? Is there a, is there something that appeals to you on a on a deeper level with what goes into which if that may if that makes any sense? Yeah. Um so one of the reasons we started the new magazine was because as the quarterly um got more theme oriented, um we kind of stopped taking general submissions and one of the reasons we stopped just reading general submissions was uh, was because of that element of the pieces having to play well with each other. So I don't know, three or four years ago. And, and before that we would do one or two issues a year that kind of were, were general issues. And we would, we would give them a theme after the fact, but it was always this horrible process in our office um, because really good pieces would come in. But if you accept one really good piece, then you're sort of, um, you're sort of stuck with that one really good piece. You know, it's like, it's like, um, I don't know, playing one of those games like cathedral or Blockus or something, right? Like, like you put that one big piece in the middle of the board and then that's what you have to work around and you can't, you can't change it. Um, which can work out really well, but then sometimes, you know, you get other great pieces, but they don't go with that piece or they don't, they, they lead you to random themes that are not, intuitive or not, <laughs> not easy to explain to people. Um, so we kind of stopped doing that, but I had this pile then of these great essays where I was like, I love this essay. I can't, I don't know what I would do with it. Um, so we kind of thought if we did a, a freestanding one essay magazine that would provide a place for longer essays, but it would also give us kind of the flexibility to read something and say, this is great. We'll take it. Um, so that's been really fun. The, the challenge is it turns out um, finding truly freestanding long-form pieces is really hard. Um, it's, it's a little harder than I expected, uh, to be honest. So I think the pieces that are in the magazine, they do, um, a lot of them are terrific and, and on their own, they're wonderful. Um, but they do, I think they, they function a little bit um, as a group in the sense that, uh, 
you know, they have this theme that kind of gives them a little extra weight and then they, they play off each other. And they, they usually, when I'm putting an issue together and we're reading the proofs, um, I can see little, um, little ways they play together and, and it's not deliberate. Obviously the writers aren't, you know, in touch with each other, but you'll start to see And I think it comes from the theme and everything else, but, but even just little references or little research references, or, um, sometimes just really peculiar words will turn up and they'll kind of echo through an issue. And I'm always blown away by that because it makes me really happy. Um, and I take it as a sign that we've kind of done something right. You know, it's like all these things aligning and you're like, Oh, look, all the, look at them, all the puzzle pieces, they just all kind of lined up. Um, doing just one essay is great, but it, it really, it has to sort of do those different things on its own. So a lot of times in the quarterly, you know, we'll take a piece that's really, really just narrative. And then you can kind of have room for a piece that, that doesn't have a strong a narrative, but that is a little more meditative, but together, all together, they kind of hit all those notes for the reader. And in the, the single issue thing, the pieces themselves have to do that and have to kind of cohere within themselves. Um, so that's been an interesting challenge reading pieces. And there are some pieces we've read and we're like, yeah, this is kind of great, but it's not, um, either it's that the story isn't really compelling enough, um, to make it feel like its own thing so that, you know, it has to be good enough that if that's what you get in the mail and that's the only thing you get to read, you know what I mean? Like in the quarterly, you can kind of like, Oh, there's room for readers to be like, Oh, if they're this kind of reader, um, to sort of be like, Oh, that's like a lyric essay. I'm not, I'm, I'm not into that one or, Oh, that one's sort of about this subject that I'm not so interested in. Um, I think the test for, for true story is that the pieces really do have to exemplify that, um, that thing we believe in, which is that a really good story can make any subject, um, you know, relevant for a reader, but because uh, you because you have to not lose people right away if they're just like oh <laughs> this is that kind of story you know? yeah <laughs> so what uh what surprises you and what still excites you about putting out this kind of work every three months and yeah you know, what you've been you've been doing it for you know a dozen years and so what yeah what what excites you and still surprises you to this day as you put out an issue Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> right now we're a little behind with our spring issue and I hate the whole thing. <laughs> like the whole <laughs> magazine. I'm like, okay, we're done with this. Why, why, why do we do this? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think for me, you know, a lot of the, um, I think the, the magazine has gotten better as we've gotten more experienced at doing it. Um, you know, so that's fun. I think it's um, one element that's really fun is seeing how the art comes together. Um, that's always sort of a challenge, but then it, it makes it more real when you see the whole thing and it's all laid out and it, it comes together. Um, and then I think there are those, um, you know, the, the bigger level thing. I think one of the, the interesting things about the way we make the magazine is we pick these themes and we know they're interesting themes and we know they're good writing prompts. Um, but you get to the end and, and you have to do the cover art and kind of, you know, you sort of, for, for us, um, editorially, it's that chance to step back and say, okay, well, you know, we picked this theme, we picked these essays. Now, how, what do they all make together? Um, 
And I think most of the time it's, it's kind of a nice surprise how well they work out, but it's always interesting to see what they add up to. Like, for example, we did this joy issue recently, um, which really couldn't have been worse timed. I mean, it, you know, it was sort of like the end of 2016 and we were like rushing to finish up our joy issue. And we we're just like, this is horrible. Like what I am, I don't know what I'm feeling. I'm feeling all the things, but one of the things I am not feeling right now, um, you know, in like November and December of last year, like joy was in really short supply. Right. Um, you know, and I think that issue though turned out really beautifully. Um, I mean, the art was kind of beautiful, but, but the pieces themselves, it was actually, it was really, it was, it was, it was helpful to be working on that issue. Um, but at the same time, we were, we were really like, wow, look at us with the timing. We're, we're really, really nailing this again. Like, there we are. <laughs> um, but I, I think it all worked out. But, you know, that was kind of a, a wonderful surprise that, again, we couldn't really have planned and, and didn't see coming. So it's interesting because you do spend this sort of intense period of time thinking about these themes. And, um, you know, a lot of them I don't really go into having having sort of preconceptions um we did a marriage issue and uh it it turned out to be so much about paperwork like we spent so much time in the office talking about um I mean fact checking things about paperwork but also just discussing the extent to which the stories we picked and, and we didn't even really think this when we picked them but they ended up really being about kind of the the formal what it means to be married and who can be married and and kind of what it gives you to be married. And, you know, I think we expected sort of different things to come out of those stories. And, and that's where we ended up instead. And so that's always interesting. Cause I, I think if you went into issues knowing what you were trying to do with them, um, that would be a lot less interesting. Mm. Where can people, um, you know, find, uh, any, any work by you or, would you care to direct people to like creativenonfiction.org? Like where would you want to want people to, to go to find more about you or the magazine? Oh yeah. I mean, we're at creativenonfiction.org. Everything's there. It's we're about due for a web redesign. Um, there's a lot of stuff there, but persevere and you'll find what you're looking for. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, websites, they're, they're a huge challenge for small nonprofits. Um, so we keep adding all these things and we're like, Oh, where are we going to put that new magazine on this site? Um, but yeah, creative nonfiction.org. The magazine is, uh, the quarterly is for sale in a lot of bookstores and newsstands. There's a digital version that's available through Zinio, um, which is especially useful for overseas subscribers. I think the postage is really expensive. Um, and then true story is available, um, either directly from us, it's not really available on newsstands, but you can get a monthly subscription. It shows up in a little envelope. Um, there's also a Kindle version of that. Um, you can get it through the Kindle newsstand and it'll download directly to your reader. So, um, but yeah, and me, I don't write, so, <laughs> <laughs> so don't look for me. <laughs> Very nice, All right. So that's another episode of Hashtag CNF in the books. Thanks to Hattie Fletcher for coming on the show. She was great, very insightful, especially if you're a writer looking to break into the magazine. Uh, listening to her just made me a more 
detailed reader of work and in my own work. So I hope you got some value out of that. If you did, by all means, share the episode with somebody you think will get something out of it. Subscribe to the podcast. I also have a cool monthly newsletter where I send out uh, book recommendations that I'm reading. And um, that's about it. You know, uh, if you want to reach out, you can find me on Twitter. Or, uh, yeah, that's just about it. You can find me on Twitter. Anyway, thanks for listening. Stay tuned. More to come. Thank you.